Are you ready? Hey, everybody. Hey, folks. Hello, everybody. People in the back. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to the inner loop. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to the inner loop. Without further ado. Without further ado. Okay, so without further ado, we're going to get started. We should get started. We're yeah. Rambling. I'm rambling. We're, we're, we're going to get started. <laughs> Welcome to the Interloop Radio. I'm Rachel Kuntz. And I'm Courtney Sexton. Thank you for joining us. If you haven't already, remember to subscribe to our podcast, leave us a review, and check out our website at theinnerlooplit.org. For any new listeners out there here on The Inner Loop Radio, we delve into all things creative writing, whether that be inspiration or craft, publishing or editing, how to make a living, or just how we all sit down each day in front of an empty page. We invite friends and local writers onto the show to talk about their writing journey, what inspires them, or to delve deeper into craft. On today's show, we want to solve the mystery of prolific writers. And it is a mystery because I am the polar opposite (laughs) of prolific. (laughs) Courtney? Yeah, I mean, I'm not like Stephen King over here. Courtney's <laughs> like, like, I don't know what you mean. I write and write, I write, and write. all the time. But no, um, I feel like I write a lot, but not a lot creatively these days. I'm yeah. very much like a muller. I'm saying if if journal writing counts, I'm ju- yeah, I'm crazy writing all the time. I've got journals and journals and journals like you know stacked up. On, across every wall. If Does magazine count? articles count, I do a lot of those. You do do a lot of those. Uh, I don't know what I was thinking about. I'm going to throw it back to one of our recent episodes when uh, David Keplinger took over and his prompt. He like, it really, I was listening to it the other day and it was it, so good. It was good. But it what really hit me was he was like, I'm not one of those people who just like writes all the time. It really like kind of comes to me in little pieces. And I was like, me too. <laughs> I was gonna say I feel like um young writers always want to know like yeah. about writing ha- what's your writing habits Habit. how do you write how do you uh you know get into it and I feel like this question is kind of related to that you know like mm-hmm. how do you write so much or so many different things how do you get your mind into all these different places um and how do you have the discipline to like write that yeah that's insane so like my question is, do you do like Charles Dickens where you like write every morning from 8 a.m. to no, 12 p.m.? I feel like that really jives with me. I mean, that's a beautiful <laughs> idea. Ben Franklin said something like that, too. No, Ben Franklin was insane. OK, he's I mean, like, get yeah, up at 4 a.m. Yeah, he was like, I sleep for two hours. Yeah, exactly. No, 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 no. Charles Dickens, like it was actually very reasonable when I read about his writing routine because it was like, you know, he got up with his kids in the morning and then from like 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. he wrote. And then he would go for a long walk and then he would hang out with his family in the evening. And I was like, I could do that. Uh, yeah. If I were like independently wealthy, I could right, probably course, do obviously. that too. <laughs> if, we, if we were all independently wealthy, we'd all be prolific, right? Um, yeah. But I feel like you'd probably jive with Agatha Christie, who basically kept a notebook with her yeah. and would just write down ideas as they came. And I then like, one day she'd like lock herself in a room and be like, do not interrupt me. Yeah. I'm writing. That's more my style for sure. Yeah. I like find little like half pieces of napkins or like scraps all over and then like 
they'll kind of just put together and be like, oh, that's a poem. There cool. it is. There, there it is. is. <laughs> but it'll take years. So like I'll be gathering them <laughs> from the ether. <laughs> that's my problem is it takes me years to craft yeah. anything. It's ridiculous. Well, I think part of it too, though, is like when I think of very prolific writers today, like, uh, especially in terms of those who are like, um, like I don't know, maybe like mass market kind of thing. Like, mm-hmm. there's a formula, right? Like Stephen so, King, Stephen King, or like, I'm but he writes of, all different kinds. He of does things. write all different kinds. Of, or I'm thinking of like romance writers a right. lot, like Nora Roberts. I was really into her books for a while. Yeah, quantity there's is nothing not necessarily the goal. Great about them, granted. they're not terrible, <laughs> but like, there's a formula. So like, when yeah. you know kind of how to like plug and chug, you can do that pretty easily too, right? right? That's yeah. just like another. Oh yeah, method. like the Goosebumps books. Exactly. R.L. Stein totally yes. came up when I googled prolific writers. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. All right, one more writing habit that I looked up was uh which I really really liked also was Ray Bradbury yeah who would uh read a short story every night before he went to bed and then he would write a short story once a week okay and I was like I feel like I could do that too because then by the end of the year you've read 365 short stories and written what was it like 52 52. yeah that's that's (laughs) awesome that's also like Reading is obviously an incredibly important part of your writing habit, like talking about that. I find that when I fall off of yeah, my reading, totally I also fall off of my writing. Absolutely. So, yeah. Yeah. And I feel like goals like that, even if, you know, like if you're Charles Dickens and you do it every morning or you're um, Agatha Christie and you lock yourself in a room or Ray Bradbury, who like has this goal each week, yeah. like having a goal like that or at least forcing yourself to get over the hump yeah. is really important because it's so easy to like get to the hard part and be like I don't want to sure. I don't want to figure this out because you always hit I feel like I always hit a hump I always hit a block and then as soon as I like force myself past that block then I have a breakthrough there's also the like along with that the oh well I can do it anytime yeah. There's the it's like it's in there. Oh yeah, when I you don't have, have kids, you're like, I can write all the time. No, no, no. no. <laughs> it's like you like you like keep yourself from doing it because you're like, oh, I don't have to sit down tonight and do it because I can mm. really do it. I'll like do it. It's yeah. there. I don't it's just a yeah. matter of like when I feel like it. That, you know? That's what was great about grad school is yeah. like deadlines. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, anyway we don't know anything Alas. about being prolific. Alas. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get more on this subject with someone who, unlike us, actually is prolific coming up we unlock the secret to prolificacy is that it's sure. totally a I word and you. i like it i believe you stay tuned <laughs> gather gather um you can gather in gather around gather around for the second half and we're gonna get started we're gonna get started we'll get started we're officially getting started you this time. Welcome back to the Interloop Radio. We've been discussing prolificacy. And now, <laughs> it's a word, I swear. Uh, now I'd like to welcome the prolific Mecca Jamila Sullivan, whose latest novel, Big Girl from W.W. W. Norton, Live Right, just came out in paperback. Now, I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say you are prolific and maybe just a little bit of an overachiever. <laughs> In addition to your BA, MA, and PhD, you are also the author of three books. Your creative re- work has been published in more than 13 well-known publications. Your critical work has been featured in more than 22 top-tier publications. You have won five prizes for your stories, 
attended five residencies, received grants from eight different foundations and universities. I could go on. Now, I put specific numbers to your achievements because in a previous episode of the Interloop Radio, we were talking numbers Mm. and the chances of getting published from Mm. the submissions pile of any well-known magazine. It's actually less than 1%. And yet somehow you beat the odds more than 35 times. So... (laughs) Tell us, what's your strategy? And also welcome. Thank you so much. I love this welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm also just really loving this conversation. And yeah, that's such an interesting way of framing this. Honestly, I never really thought about this as a numbers game, but of course it is in a way, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. and even when you don't know the statistics and even when you're not aware of your own statistics, right? Which I think it's important to me at least not to be, Mm -hmm. knowing that, you know, the numbers are not necessarily in your favor, But there are certain kind of ways that you can quantify your effort, Mm -hmm. right, that become kind of crucial. And I think that's definitely the case for me. In listening to your conversation, I'm like, you know what? I feel like I'm a Bradbury meets Agatha Christie, right, where it's like Mm -hmm. creating deadlines has always been super important for me. I spent a lot of time in grad school where, as you said, right, deadlines are kind of baked into the process. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I was in grad school for English literature and doing creative writing on the side. And Mm -hmm. so at a certain point, I felt like I actually... You know, I had the deadlines that were being imposed were writing deadlines, but not for the kind of writing that I, you know, sort of felt closest to, honestly. Mm. So I had to create similar deadlines for myself. And that did become a matter of sort of quantity, right? Like, Mm -hmm. this is how many weeks I have to produce this many stories or drafts or this, you know, I have this number of days to get this draft to this number of readers, right? And Mm. though I hadn't thought about it at that in that way at the time. That's 100 percent what I was doing. Mm. Um, And yeah, I mean, deadlines really that's that's the thing for me. And I'm not at all a numbers person. (laughs) I very rarely know what time it is, even what day of the week (laughs) it is. Right. So like training my brain to kind of move beyond its sort of natural way. Mm -hmm. Right. And sort of thinking about my life and my time in very sort of, again, quantifiable ways Mm -hmm. that really helped me to kind of feel more a kind of fuller sense of creative freedom Mm -hmm. because I knew like something is getting written by this day. You know what I mean? Whether it's good or not, how I feel about it, whatever I'm getting it done. Yeah. It's that really rings true to me. Um, I feel like there's so many aspects of writing that are so different that Mm -hmm. at some point as a writer, you're going to like hit a discomfort and you're going to have to force yourself out of your comfort zone, whether it's, you know, meeting deadlines, like messing around with numbers Um, or when you get to the publishing process and you have to be your own marketer and there are so many, so many ways in which I've had to like push outside of my comfort zone. (laughs) Better get used to it, writers. Very true. (laughs) Um, so what about like submitting to magazines? Like what's the, what's the style? Do you submit slush piles usually, or, you know, does your agent like make calls? How does that work? And can I interrupt? Like adding to that, is that part of the deadline setting? Like I know for a while when I was not steeped in my creative writing, that was a way to right. do creative. I was like, oh, I'll write to this totally. submission or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, totally, 100%. And so I have to say that has changed over the kind of course of my writing career as well, right? So in the very beginning of my writing life, I would say, yeah, absolutely. I was submitting to the slush pile. I was submitting everywhere. I was submitting to The New Yorker. I was submitting to my undergraduate literary magazine mm-hmm. kind of at the same time, just like, you know, throwing balls at the wall and seeing what happened. And you know, most of that was predictable in terms of the outcomes <laughs> at that time. But like, 
I think it was good because it got me into a habit. You know, Mm -hmm. submitting is kind of like working a muscle. Mm. And, you know, I developed a a ritual around sort of submitting and how I would submit and when I would submit. And that led me to, you know, different opportunities where at this point, for the most part, I don't submit to the slush pile um, or I haven't. I just haven't. Maybe is a better way to put it. I haven't in a while, Mm -hmm. Um, partly because I, you know, some of these residencies, you sort of get to know Mm -hmm. people and meet people who are starting really cool magazines and they're asking you to submit Mm -hmm. something. And so mostly that's how that is working for me these days. But you're absolutely right that, yeah, for me, you know, early on. The, the idea of sort of contest deadlines or submission deadlines, mm-hmm. absolutely, that was a way of sort of like, you know, working deadlines into my writing life and just deciding no matter what, right, no matter what I have going on in my day job and my family life, whatever else, I'm going to submit this story to this contest at this time. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I highly recommend. And the other thing is that, as I said, the rituals. So one of the rituals I developed while I was working on this kind of like, you know, sort of creating these external deadlines was I had a rejection ritual and I still kind of use it. Mm-hmm. And it's one that I actually oh, haven't I can't talked wait about. I haven't talked about it publicly, but I feel like this is perfect for this, you know, for this venue, this venue and this forum. So basically what I would do, and I still do in a, in a certain way, when I receive a rejection, I do something that feels really good to me. And then I do something that is good for me. Mm-hmm. And then I get back to work. And so what that might mean is like, you know, I love French fries. Anyone who has read my work, especially this novel, knows like I love fries. So I might be like, you know, if I get a rejection, especially if it's something that I, you know, that I was really hopeful about Mm -hmm. or or not, honestly, I'll just like treat myself to like Mm. the very best crinkle cut fries, like fry perfectly with the right (laughs) amount of salt. You know what I mean? Like make it good, you know, like perfect. Right. And really, truly enjoy it. And then I'll do something that is good for me, which could be you know, taking a long walk and getting fresh air. It could be doing my taxes, right? Something mm. that feels paying, you know, a bill that's just, you know, kind of library fine, whatever, right? Something that's sort of I like, love that your bills are library fine. <laughs> I mean, sometimes so they great. are. I mean, you know, like, hey, this is the same space, right? <laughs> sometimes they are. Whatever is the thing that will make me feel self-efficacious, yeah. right? And feel mm. like, you know, I'm capable of doing things that I may not want to do, you know, sort of activating that part of myself that sees myself as, someone who can accomplish what they want to accomplish mm-hmm. in the world. Mm-hmm. And then I get back to work, whether that means, you know, writing another couple of paragraphs or submitting the same thing again, right? Mm-hmm. Just something that sort of signals a kind of forward momentum with mm-hmm. my writing. Hmm. And that is something I developed very early on in graduate school. And it really held me down yeah. because, I mean, you kind of need all of those things. You know what I mean? If you want to sort of get to a place where you are prolific or productive or just like where your work is out in the world Mm -hmm. you need to feel okay Mm -hmm. a lot of the time (laughs) you know what I mean you need to kind of be self-efficacious and you need to be working and so sort of wrapping that all up as a response to rejection was really helpful for me yeah, that's probably the best submission advice yeah. that we've ever gotten that's on the show. Super healthy <laughs> also. Go, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, but I love this description of like submitting is like a muscle that mm-hmm. you have yep. to work and that you talk about rituals and stuff. And, and and it sort of reminds me of, you know, workout routines mm-hmm. and things or like trying to run and you like push yourself a little bit further, a little bit further. Um, and it's very much, you know, about discipline. And I think you know, I think submitting is, is such a discipline that you have to practice Mm -hmm. and get probably gets easier with time. You know, I think also for myself, it has definitely gotten easier. The more you do it, the less rejection, like gives you that deep sting Mm -hmm. 
Um, but I also love this, like, you know, self-care routine at yeah, the end really. where, you know, I take a hot bath after a hard workout. Yes. You got to treat yourself after a bad rejection. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, I, you know, working out is something that I think about a lot and do a lot and what it means to work out for me in a body that's not necessarily sort of the one you think of when you think of an active body or an mm -hmm. athletic body. And absolutely part of what makes that work for me also is mm -hmm. that the pleasure aspect, mm -hmm. right? Like if I were just expecting myself to do, you know, deadlifts all the time, yeah. right? Where it's all labor and I personally don't get tremendous enjoyment, it wouldn't happen. Right. So I have to kind of make sure that I'm centering my joy and my pleasure. You know what I mean? And so absolutely, I think totally. that it's really writing and honestly, anything that you, anything challenging that you want to do in life, probably there's a, there's going to be a kind of resonance there, right? That like you have to make it enjoyable you have to access some mm -hmm. kind of pleasure otherwise you just won't do it yeah so true and well, remember to celebrate the rewards yeah yeah well i mean i i i love hearing this from you because so often the the, the rhetoric is about like the pain of writing right. and writing is so right. painful yeah. you know and, and like, lonely and yeah just and like, like not good. yes okay yeah. uh, and you yes, know totally it is a yes and for sure yeah, yeah. yeah. and i think reading too like you know, really kind of giving yourself pleasure reading yeah. that helps you remember why you love letters, why you love language, yeah. why you love whatever your form is. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? Mm. That that's the, at least for me, that stays with me. And so I treat myself to pleasure reading pretty regularly, especially after a major deadline. Mm -hmm. Wow. Just going to let that sink in. I know. <laughs> what have you pleasure read recently? I was going to say, I do. <laughs> okay, I really want to know. No, no, no. I, I'm here for it. So it's funny. I, I mean, it's been a minute since I've had a chance to do like real pleasure reading. But that's because I'm like doing cool things like, you know, blurbing books and yeah. reading new stuff. Oh, and, you know, so there's a pleasure in that too, yeah. right? My go-to, honestly, so I've got to, well, I have several, but <laughs> Jamaica Kincaid. Mm -hmm. Like I, her narrators, I really just always feel yeah. like I'm hanging out with like, a wise, hilarious homegirl yeah. who like totally gets it on every level. You know what I mean? I just feel so like seen and 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 understood and challenged mm -hmm. by her narrators. Like they truly feel like friends. So she's always pleasure reading for me. Cool. And generally it's people that I kind of tend to, Lori Moore is another person mm -hmm. I feel very similarly about, you know, it's really about the narrator and just like hanging out with someone I truly enjoy. That's how I feel when I, when I return mm -hmm. to these. Awesome. Yeah. And so Returning to, you know, how, so I'm thinking about you and your deadlines yeah. and uh, this, this muscle that you're working in the midst of creating. Uh, so also I'm curious because you have achievements in so many different kinds of mm -hmm. writing. Is it, what's that process like? Do you work on many different things at the same time and kind of switch between or are you like a one thing at a time kind of gal? You know, it's so funny. I love this question because I really, though I, I, I feel like I'm faced with this question often, I truly never know the answer. And the reason <laughs> is it really has changed from moment to moment in mm. my life. You know what I mean? So like when I was in grad school working on my PhD, I was working mostly on academic writing, or at least those were the deadlines that I had. Right. Mm. And so, you know, in some ways I was, meanwhile, I never stopped being a creative writer. Right. And was mm -hmm. always sort of in my heart, a creative writer and in practice, right? I was always sort of fighting for time to do that mm, kind of work. Mm -hmm. So on one hand, I was absolutely thinking about both kinds of writing at the same time. And I was doing like some public writing. I was editing for the Feminist Wire. I was kind of like doing a bunch of stuff, right? Mm. Um, and yet it really, I think my my way is actually to kind of um, create little pockets of, of space mm -hmm. and time where I'm able to sort of separate the different kinds of writing. So like, 
you know, after a semester of working on it, on the dissertation, for example, I would give myself at least two weeks to like just focus on short stories or mm-hmm. just focus on a novel. Mm-hmm. And then I would go back to, you know, whatever the other kind of writing was that I was able to do. So in some ways, it's a little bit of both. It's like, you know, all of these kinds of writing have always been with me. But the kind of pragmatic element, I, you know, required me to kind of create some boundaries, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? And create little pockets totally. of space and time yeah. for each one. And I also do think, again, this is where deadlines come in handy, mm-hmm. right? Where it's like, never did I feel like, oh, my God, I just have so much time and all these great <laughs> ideas. And so I can just sort of like, oh, I'm overwhelmed. I don't know which one to do first, right? Mm-hmm. It was sort of like, you know, my schedule let me know, okay, this is the time to work on this. And I often had to fight for the time to do the creative mm-hmm. stuff, but it was worth it to me to do that. Do you find that I sometimes, I, you know, I, I know we've bonded over this because yeah. I've just finished my yes, PhD in a totally different field, but thank mm-hmm. you. Um, but I find or found that even when I was, you know, dissertating, there were moments where I'd be like, oh, I have to make a note of that because like, yeah. that's going to be in a poem somewhere, yes, <laughs> you know, totally. like it's, they inform each other totally. in ways. Totally. Which yeah. is why I feel like I'm like kind of lying when I say what I just yeah. said, because like. <laughs> You know, for me, the only way I was able to get through the dissertation and my dissertation became my second book, right? I revised it. It became an academic book. You know, the only way I was able to see that project through was that I really did care about it. You know what I mean? And I cared about it because that book is about, it's called The Poetics of Difference, Queer Feminist Forms in the African Diaspora. And it's about how Black women writers and queer writers of the diaspora use language to kind of interrogate ideas about race, gender, class, Mm -hmm. and sexuality. Hmm. which is a thousand percent what I do in my own writing, Mm -hmm. right? And so Mm -hmm. like, you know, there were always these kind of, you know, synergies and interesting sort of frictions between my understanding of myself as a creative writer and what I was thinking about in that project. That And it really did animate the project. So yeah, there were many, many times where I was taking notes and kind of was taking notes with both brains. You know what I mean? I'm like, yes, okay, like this is what Audre Lorde is saying. This is what's happening with her poetic structure. And also this is what Audre Lorde is saying and this is what's happening with her poetic structure. You know Mm. what I mean? And yeah, I, you know, I wouldn't really have it any other way. To me, scholarship, you know, and academic writing is at its best when it also sort of speaks to creative drives and, you know, the the kind of intellectual world beyond academia. And that's what it did for me. Yeah. So tell us about Big Girl, because it sounds like you had a lot of different like projects on the pot, even if you've concentrated on one at a time at certain times. So how did this novel like come to be? Yeah. Okay. so Big Girl actually was the first book I ever imagined writing. You know, it's a coming of age story. It follows a big black queer girl from the time she's an eight year old to the time she's a 15, 16 year old set in Harlem in the 1990s. And, you know, it's about sort of her process of coming into herself and beginning to really kind of push against some of the expectations that her family and the world around her have about her life, but specifically her body. Mm. And so this is a it's a story that's very similar to my own story. Right. And so the, there are a lot of experiences that, you know, I share with the main character. And as I was having those experiences as a very young person, I was also discovering Audre Lorde, Toni mm-hmm. Morrison, who's on my T-shirt right now. I know, that's a great T-shirt, by the way. Jamaica Kincaid, right? I'm discovering all these people and realizing that writing about Black girls' lives is a thing you could do with your life. Mm. And it was completely mm. mind-blowing for me. And at the same time, I'm realizing that some of the, the aspects of my own life story, especially around fatness and embodiment, aren't necessarily centered in a lot of the literature mm-hmm. yet, right, at that time. And so I kind of knew... Pretty early on in life, I feel fortunate that that's what I wanted to do with my life. 
I just didn't know how that was going to work out and how that was going to happen. And so, you know, life sort of took me to these other, through these other sort of paths, including the PhD in English literature that allowed me to kind of develop a historical and a kind of theoretical context for the stuff that I just really wanted to do. Exactly. Mm. And, you know, so in that sense, you know, it's it's always been, again, a kind of a a both and, um, but this book has always been with me, even though it's my, so it's the third book to come out, but it truly is like the first book to be conceived, you Mm -hmm. know, in my mind. Mm -hmm. Um, And in terms of like the the kind of more pragmatic, maybe more helpful version of that story, (laughs) right, for listeners, yeah, I just didn't let it go. You know what I mean? I was just like, I'm not letting this book go. And so I kept coming back to it. Like I said, I would work on it between semesters when I was in coursework, I would work on it. Um, you know, again, as soon as like every time I finished a dissertation chapter, I would come back and just kind of, you know, work on it a little bit. It's been a long, long process with this book. Mm. And, you know, in some ways that makes me all the more thrilled to have it out in the world. Yeah. And, you know, like in like different editions, the UK version is coming out next Yay. month. The French translation comes oh, out so in cool. August. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. When you put that much time into something, you know, for me, it's because it mattered to me. The story matters to me. And to to kind of see that it also matters to other people around the world is, is yeah, incredible. Absolutely. And it's very, you know, affirming and valid- validating all those times that I truly was like miserable and slogging. What you know what I, I mean? Doing? It was like, yeah. what am I doing? Exactly. But, you know, now I know what I was doing. Awesome. Well, I would love to hear something from yeah. the book. Yeah. All right, let's do it. So, okay, this is a section. It's pretty early on. Um, I don't think it needs a ton of setup. Basically, Malaya is eight years old. And as I said, she lives in Harlem, but she attends an elite Upper East Side elementary school. So she's at school um, and she her mom has had her uh, in Weight Watchers for the last year or so. But of course, she's eight. Right. So she's not sort of like fully taking that in. Just this morning, though, on the school bus, she had an, a moment where she was singing uh, R&B at Belbiv DeVoe's Poison, for those who know, singing oh, yes. this song on the school bus. <laughs> And her crush, Dondre, right, joins in. And so she has a spark of like, wait a minute, maybe there's possibility. And Aww. for her, she's like, OK, what I need to do is lose weight. Then, right. This mm-hmm. is like a catalyst for her. And so it's lunchtime, but she's skipping lunch and she's hanging out with her friend, uh, Rachel Greenstein. What is your pleasure today, Ariala, witch in training, Rachel said in a low, crypt-like voice. Today we shall brew a gruesome spell to defeat the villains of the fourth form, Malaya cackled. She leaned her weight against the jungle gym's splintering wood beams and gestured to the corner where Amandra Wilson and a group of fourth grade girls sat braiding each other's hair. Malaya enjoyed these games with Rachel. Everything about Rachel's life seemed remote. She lived in an apartment off of Fifth Avenue with a sunken living room and a baby grand piano in the parlor. Her family kept cheesecakes decorated with fresh strawberries in the, I'm sorry, Her family kept cheesecakes decorated with fresh strawberries in the refrigerator, not only on birthdays, but at all times throughout the year. Despite this, Rachel was endlessly long and thin, with skin like an uncracked egg and dark green eyes like the underbrush of a Christmas tree. Malaya and Rachel shared an enthusiasm for imaginary worlds and a proud disdain for the silly playground games children their age were expected to play. They turned down their noses at hopscotch and dodgeball, though Rachel expressed a distinct interest in learning the hand-clapping games Amandra and the Spanish Harlem girls brought to Galton's courtyard from uptown. For the most part, the two spent their playdates at Rachel's house making up elaborate choreographed dramas to perform for their parents at pickup time, usually inspired by whatever Broadway musical Rachel's older sister had discovered most recently. 
It was in this way that Malaya memorized the full tra- soundtracks of Fiddler on the Roof and Annie Get Your Gun, which they remixed with the choruses Malaya heard on her block, producing irresistible lyrics like, Who must feed the family and run the home? The mama say, mama sa, mama kusa. As Malaya's hips and thighs began to numb under the jungle gym, she shifted her weight again. Her stomach was growling. Her mother and the Weight Watchers meeting ladies always said that that meant your body was on the right track. Malaya was proud. She had made it to lunchtime without a single mistake. She had eaten nothing since the bus ride, had not borrowed money for cookies or ice pops from the frozen or, the, or from the open pockets of the wealthy first graders. She imagined her new self, thin and pretty, a vision tantalizingly within reach. She felt so changed, so hopeful, that when Rachel suggested they join the game of freeze tag forming on the other side of the courtyard to spy on the earthling children, Malaya felt herself push up from the ground and heard herself say, okay. She felt her classmates' eyes on her as she and Rachel neared the huddle of small bodies gathered on the blacktop near the basketball court. Rachel took her hand and led her to the center of the group, where they stuck their feet into the circle and sang along to the chorus of Eeny, Meeny, Miny, Mo" as Maurice Orland, a math genius with deep freckles, poked each sneaker in succession. Malaya prayed silently that she would not be chosen it. Soon the teams divided and the children began to scatter over the wide brick courtyard like a bag of spilled jelly beans, running quickly away from Jonah Berkman, the runny-nosed boy whose sneaker had been chosen. Malaya ran, slow and stumpy at first, then faster. She felt herself loosen. She closed her eyes and thought of her new body, lithe and quick, the smaller, better girl she would be one day, soon, so soon. The courtyard softened into a blur beneath her. Air rushing at her face, she felt light but also marvelously full, not in the stomach but past it, everywhere else. She imagined herself there but not there, transported into a world where her body could do wild things like dart forward and bob on the wind like an ice cube in a cup of soda, then fizz quickly upward like a flurry of bubbles. It felt good, better than ice cream and Cool Whip, better than french fries. The only thing that soured the moment was the fear that at some point she might fall, and that falling from a feeling like this would be infinitely worse than never having run at all. Thank you. I know, I'm like crying. (laughs) (laughs) She wins in the end. Okay, guys. (laughs) I can just relate to that character so much. I just remember, well, I've spent so much of my life just wishing I had a different body. Mm -hmm. You know, I feel like probably every woman can totally. Totally. I think folks of all genders, you know, I think we're all sort of Mm. socialized to believe that our bodies are wrong, you know, and I think it's widespread. And talking to folks about this novel, it's really been eye opening to see just how pervasive that ideology and that sort of worldview is and how deeply we kind of take it in. You Mm. know, Yeah. Feels very ingrained. I'm glad we're digging it out that's right let's do it. <laughs> uh well this has been such a great discussion um thank you so much for joining us on the show thank you it's been a pleasure so much fun uh mecca teaches at georgetown university and you can buy her book big girl from ww norton live right now in paperback and um we have had such a great time with you but will you stick around for a little game i sure will i love games let's do it (laughs) (laughs) awesome up next we will see what writing about identity has to do with clouds stay tuned yeah
Welcome back to the Interloop Radio. We turn now to a little application game. Say there is a well-regarded organization that is giving money out to writers like candy. If you get accepted by them, it will open all the doors for you and they will cut you a check that will fund your writing for a year. But it is very exclusive and they have an unusual mission. Okay. Not unethical, <laughs> just unusual. Unusual. Mind you. <laughs> uh, so Courtney, Mecca, and I had to write our applications to this fictional organization, and we had to make the project that each of us is currently working on or thinking about fit in with their mission, mm-hmm. which is often something you have to do when you apply to residencies and grants. You have to take what you're working on and try to make it make sense with, you know, the people who have the money. <laughs> <laughs> so what is this fictional mission? Courtney, do you want to do Absolutely. The I'm actually, I was like pretty excited about this. I was like, <laughs> I would apply to this. But <laughs> um, <clears throat> without further ado, we are passionate about clouds, which we believe are the artistic and emotional expressions of the atmosphere. We want to honor any work that mimics those expressions or otherwise interprets the shapes of clouds. Yeah, so I totally stole this from like a list of weird groups that really? actually yeah, of exist. Course. <gasps> of course, it's yes, and oh it's a club God. of like so cool. cloud lovers. Okay. okay. Um. So anyway, how, how did that? How did this little uh, exercise go, ladies? Was it easy? Was it like I don't even know where to begin? I feel like. I, I, mine should be better than it is because <laughs> I've been doing nothing but applying right, to right. like grants and grant writing for various things right. over the past couple of years. So like I should, it should be better. Um, <laughs> but I got kind of stuck with my head in the clouds thinking about what an amazing organization. Now she's got all the puns. Yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know, Mecca. I thought it was so much fun. Yeah. And I mean, like you, I mean, I think it's also just like a really useful exercise because it's true. This is, yeah. you know, part of, Part of what's asked of you right is sort of figuring out how to articulate your work mm-hmm. for a particular audience and so and i'm like hey cloud people i didn't know y'all existed <laughs> but i'm here for it yes. you know okay so who wants to read the results first i'll go yeah okay, yeah. okay. Yeah. let's okay. start strong with Megan. Well, we'll see i don't want to over over promise here some might say malaya clondon has her head in the clouds as the big black queer girl protagonist of my novel big girl Malaya retreats to the joys of her imagination to escape the realities of her life on the ground. Growing up in a quickly gentrifying 1990s Harlem, Malaya uses art, music, and also food to block out the harsh harsh messaging around race, gender, fatness, and the body that cloud her vision of who she truly is. Clouds figure prominently both in the novel and in my writing process. Malaya seeks seeks inspiration and solace in a range of cloud forms, looking to the clear, cumulus sky, as a site of hope on her bright days and finding comfort in Harlem's stormier skylines when she feels herself sagging, full and low, like a nimbostratus. Like the clouds themselves, Malaya's body and her spirit are expansive and uncontainable. Communing with them helps her feel less alone. Like Malaya, I see clouds as a crucial part of my writing life. From its initial, initial stages to the current iteration, I find that my process with Big Girl is at its strongest when I am surrounded by clouds and members of the cloud community. <laughs> for this reason, support from the Society for Cloud Inquiry and Enthusiasm, mm-hmm. SCI, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. would be invaluable to me. Thank you. 
Oh my god. <laughs> okay, I, you definitely should have gone last first of all. I just feel like I went I went too far. I got into it. No. You know what though? An acronym? Because I was like, I need to give this thing a name, but what it has god. to be sky. So how are we gonna make this work? It's like, you know, a poetic constraint. So two things. This I, is why you first of all have all these Exactly. Yeah, I was just gonna say I was like, okay, it is clear to me now. Um I don't know. Y'all should have a foundation is also I think what's going but on. Also lesson learned, right? Is this true like do, do clouds feature prominently in the novel i mean like they could yeah yeah nothing i said there was untrue yeah. and i think that's the way to do that's it right, right? Like, yeah. except for i have not been aware that clouds figure prominently sure. in my writing practice but thinking well, like, about it they're always there yeah, so <laughs> yeah. they probably do yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> like, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Dude, give me that money cloud foundation <laughs> they will feature they will. Yeah. I will write all your cloud yes, novels exactly. let's go if you're going to sponsor my writing for a year I'm going to bring yes. the clouds yes. out in that book yes, okay? they're exactly. going to be clouds in every scene <laughs> it's true it's true yeah yes. I love it it was an awesome exercise cool wow you, you killed it I don't, I don't know all right, you're going to have I'm just going to go because it is not there um, and I didn't like get into I wanted to like build in the language of the like you know the like about the foundation organization i didn't get quite that far so this is just so like i don't know a little bit i write a lot about dogs and i don't know what the specific project is yet but it's, it's up there it's in the cloud it's, it's in, in the, the cloud, cloud. yeah waiting to participate I, I was thinking about doing something of like dog breeds as seen through clouds oh. like oh. Yeah, that, 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 yeah okay anyway. it's something you can work on i can think yeah. about that yeah it's a think piece um Dogs are our guides to the world we abandoned, the last great connection we hold to our wild. In order to embrace this gift they offer, we must find better ways to listen. Similar to understanding the language of the atmosphere, as expressed through clouds, precipitation, and the myriad forces we are confronted by in the sky, understanding what dogs can show us demands that we seek cues in unlikely places, listen deeper for meanings we aren't aware we aren't aware of, and in other words, look harder for the shapes of clouds that canines offer and be ready to interpret them with new perspectives. Nice. Yes. I would absolutely so find that project. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, that was a really, okay. you know, I feel like you demonstrated your writing style yes. in your application, that's which I, I think that's is also usually a method. I, yeah, yeah, and I was trying to make it like wispy, like yes, clouds. Like a cloud. yeah. 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 Okay. All right. Totally. Okay. okay. Um, Bring I just home, like right? I leaned. I also yeah. like brought my writing style in because I tend to lean heavily on metaphor. Uh -huh. so here we okay. Go. My project is an artistic expression of intergenerational trauma, like the evaporation of the Earth's liquids into the atmosphere. Trauma also rises to an unknown place where it lies in wait. It accumulates with lived experiences, compounding itself through repetition, compulsion, and environmental reinforcements until it finally bursts, precipitating itself upon the next generation. Yeah. Yes. Okay. okay. I think these, like, <laughs> these are we so okay. solid. Or yeah. not solid. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> this is awesome. This should be, like, a, you know, a journal issue or something. Yeah. Right? Cloud writing. I'm proud of us, you guys. Yeah. 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 We're fresh. Uh, <laughs> totally. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for playing along with us and thank for being you. on the show, Mecca. Thank you. Yeah. It was so much fun. Thanks for having me. That's our show. We'll be back next Monday with an inspiration takeover. Our new series of mini episodes where a local writer takes over the podcast to give us a dose of inspiration. 
And if you want to learn more about The Inner Loop and all of our programming, visit us at theinnerlooplit.org or find us in the clouds where you can also donate to support us Yay. and local literature. But don't throw your money to the sky. Like, actually give it, give to, it us. to us. Um, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Inner Loop Lit. Today's episode was produced by me, Rachel Kuntz. Our theme music is by Andrew Logan and our technical advisor is James Skinner. Thanks again to Mecca Jamila Sullivan for joining us on the show. And if you enjoyed today's episode, tell us with some pictures of clouds. Or better yet, leave us a review that can be pictures of clouds. Can be. Uh, but it could also be, could be the Interloop Radio is a visible mass of miniature literature droplets gathering inspiration from nearby sources and pouring motivation upon its listeners. That's a good one. We should say that. Right? Yeah. I got metaphors all day. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, don't forget to subscribe. Subscribe. Subscribe so you can get inspired, get focused, and get lit on the Inner Loop Radio. Happy writing. Right on.